welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Migration Research Group and the Department of Politics at the University of Sheffield. Many people express and urge others to stand in solidarity with refugees. In 2016, the UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon spoke about the 65 million forcibly displaced in the world, addressing the UNHCR Executive Committee. He said then, the numbers are staggering, each one represents a human life. But this is not a crisis of numbers, it's a crisis of solidarity. But what does it mean to stand in solidarity with refugees? What precisely is a crisis of solidarity? What is one committed to when one expresses solidarity with refugees? This has been a topic of a project funded by the White Rose University Consortium, led by Carrie Woods, lecturer in political theory at the University of Leeds, Alice Nahr, lecturer at the Centre for Applied Human Rights at the University of York, and myself. In this episode, we discuss some of the topics and conclusions drawn throughout this project, which are currently being collated for a special issue, hopefully forthcoming next year. I started by asking Carrie Woods and Alice Nart why they were interested in the idea of solidarity with refugees. We'll hear first from Carrie. Like the response to the European refugee crisis um, was framed in terms of a lack of solidarity by a few people, so including uh, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Um, and obviously some of that is about burden sharing within and between the, the EU institutions, but I think it is also about public attitudes, that, that there is this idea that there's a lack of solidarity towards refugees. So there's one phenomenon. Another phenomenon is if you think about what goes on in Refugee Week, if you take like a cursory look at Twitter in Refugee Week, then you get people tweeting stuff and saying hashtag solidarity with refugees or hashtag I stand with refugees. Um, and I find that really interesting because there's a huge amount of negativity towards refugees and asylum seekers in the media and public discourse that's kind of readily observable. But then there is this other trend that's very positive and open and welcoming towards refugees. There are obviously people who feel very strongly that we should stand in solidarity with refugees. So as a political theorist, I think it's worth looking closely at what solidarity actually means and asking questions about how it can be realised and asking what people are doing and what do they think they're doing when they say there's a lack of solidarity or when they say I feel solidarity. So that's that's what got me interested. Yeah, and I will ask you in a moment what you actually mean by solidarity or, or how you interpret the um, the idea of solidarity with refugees. But first, Alice, mm-hmm. is that similar to... Um, yeah. Your interest. So I've been I've been studying refugee protection for about fifteen years now, um, and and I and I've realized over time that actually what is quite fundamental to refugee protection is solidarity, um, and that solidarity can be institutionalized in terms of laws and ins, you know um, yeah institutions um, in in a more formal way, or it it could be sort of the. Uh, um, sort of the soft, um, how do you say, a willingness to help others that enables these uh, institutions, political institutions and, and legal institutions to, um, to, to have some power, you know. So I think it's quite uh, fundamental in terms of refugee protection. Um, it expresses itself in different ways. So you were talking about how refugees in uh, Europe, you know, are cast quite negatively in contrast, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to other, other yeah, um, migrants or other people who move across borders. But I think in, in the context of Southeast Asia, 
um, where my work is based, actually there isn't a, a really strong understanding of who refugees are um, because uh, the, the definition of refugee is not enshrined in, in laws. Yeah? So it's a very sort of like public understanding uh, of refugees and often an imperfect understanding. So a lot of work that civil society does is actually trying to explain who refugees are, what the circumstances are of their movement, how they're different from other um, non-citizens who move across borders. Um, and, and in that sort of articulation of you know, who refugees are, it is uh, on the basis of solidarity or empathy with their circumstances that, um, yeah, that, that, that brings them alongside refugees. So I think there are similar themes uh, about you know, the importance of the public understanding of uh, who refugees are so that they stand in solidarity with them. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll come on to that as well later on on this, on how we actually um, generate solidarity with refugees. Yeah. But maybe first, and maybe carry back to you, what, what do you actually mean by solidarity? Because like you said, mm-hmm. it's been thrown around a lot in lots of different circumstances. Yeah, I mean, so I don't, I don't have a single answer to that question. I'm not sure. Like, I think one of the things that our project has been about is trying to disentangle how solidarity is related to empathy mm-hmm. and also hospitality mm-hmm. um, and sort of norms of hospitality and norms mm-hmm. of um, receiving strangers. Um, if you look at the the literature, the political theory literature on solidarity, there are obviously various different ways of understanding. Um, solidarity and people talk about there being a distinction between political solidarity civic solidarity, social solidarity mm-hmm. uh, cosmopolitan solidarity um, but I think across all those different theories some common th- themes do emerge so I think one is that solidarity is understood as a relation between people who are recognising one another as moral equals um, another is that solidarity is usually anyway thought to be rooted in some kind of commonality or mutuality, like a shared struggle or a shared identity. Um, and solidarity, thirdly, is, is recognised as entailing some kind of commitment to take some action or some gesture on one another's behalf. Now, if that's a sort of usual understanding of solidarity, I think that raises some interesting questions when you think about what solidarity means in relation to refugees. So, for instance, asylum seekers are quite obviously not equal to citizens of receiving states in the sense that citizens enjoy the rights and privileges of citizenship, right, which asylum seekers don't. Um, So the idea that, that we who are citizens can and should stand in solidarity with refugees then raises some ethical questions about how best to do that, given that you are in an unequal kind of power relationship there. Um, and how to do that, how to offer solidarity in ways that respect refugees' agency. Um, and at the same time as that, there will be practical questions about what kinds of action, what kinds of support solidarity should entail. Is it about meeting practical needs like providing shelter um, and food and clothing? Is it beyond that about offering friendship and offering a a welcome that's not just material but that's also relational? Um, Is it about political campaigning to sort of, in the context that you were talking about, Alice, identify who are refugees and why are they refugees? Uh, But also in the European context to sort of, you know, say something about addressing the the absence of burden sharing across Europe. 
or is it about all of these things? So that, that doesn't answer the question. Uh, but I, I, I come at this in terms of well, what, if you're trying to understand what solidarity means, these are the kinds of questions you have to investigate the answers to. But yeah, Alice. Yeah, no, and I actually wanted to say is that actually um, on the surface of things, it sounds like quite an innocent concept, but actually there's so many dimensions to it. Mm. So like what, what we've been talking about and what the, the papers in our workshop um, have been dealing with are, are several questions really. What are, what's the basis for solidarity, you know, and there are different, different bases for, for, for solidarity. Um, how is it expressed? Like you're saying, you know, what does that actually mean? You know, if you feel solidarity for someone, how how do how do people show that to each other? Um, what are the implications of solidarity or the limits of solidarity? Um, but also, I think I think actually, um, different people have different understandings of what solidarity is. You know, so I think one of the tricky things about solidarity is really trying to pin down what the variations are um, and why the variations occur because. Um, you can think, you know, like uh, each of us may have a different um, way of uh, understanding and expressing solidarity to a refugee, you know. Um, and sometimes that shifts from person to person, uh, from, from refugee group to refugee group, you know. So I think like just reflecting on one of the, the comments by, uh, in the papers that, that we've been looking at, uh, looking at affinity-based solidarity. I know of people who um, are willing to help refugees because, let's say, they share the same religion. You know, or um, the refugees who they're they're willing to help um, their ethnic ties to them, um, you know, from the past, or maybe the the people in, involved in refugee movements are either refugees themselves or have ancestors who are refugees. You know, so I think people come to solidarity uh, in different ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people, which um, so that's the paper by uh, James Souter and uh, Josh Hobbs, I think. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and and they point out that some people find those different avenues a bit problematic. Yes. Um, but maybe we should, are you suggesting we should actually just be more open to different avenues down solidarity? Um, I, I think there is um, how, how we ought to behave versus how we behave. And I think that if you take a human rights perspective as I do, it, you know, really we should. Um, be non-discriminatory, you know, um, the rights of a refugee should apply to all regardless of race, religion, nationality or forms of difference, you know. But I think in reality a lot of people feel sympathy or empathy, you know, for refugees on the basis of affinity, you know. So I think that's just the, the realist uh, approach, I guess, uh, is, is recognising that. And I think as they say, it is problematic. Affinity-based, you know, solidarity is definitely problematic, but it is quite powerful as well. You know, you're not always trying to beg people, or, I mean, it feels like begging, but you're not always trying to implore um, people to act on behalf of, of someone else, you know. There's something already there, um, something already powerful or latent within them where they're willing to help. So I think it's important uh, as, as um, theorists to understand that better. Mm. I mean, I think... Um one of the things that we're skirting around here is the question of what's the motivation to engage yeah. in solidarity with people. And one of the things I think we're going to talk about in a minute is the way that refugees' stories and hearing and mm. listening to refugee stories can kind of pierce a, an indifference sometimes yeah. um, and help to provide yes. a motivation on a humanitarian basis yes. or a human rights basis when it's yeah. not there. Um, but I think it would be, as you say, unrealistic and, and possibly um, unwise to discredit affinity-based um, solidarities mm -hmm. because there is this motivation 
Um, and it's quite clear that there's a lack of motivation to act in solidarity uh, in lots of cases. Mm-hmm. So although it's problematic um, to, to endorse a kind of affinity-based model of solidarity um, when you're talking about refugee flows, when you're talking about lots of people who need um, yeah. to be welcomed somewhere, um, I do think that you have to take seriously the motivational question. Yeah. I suppose it's so long as it doesn't... So one example would be maybe the um, uh, the different reaction in Europe towards Christian refugees mm-hmm. from Syria versus Muslim mm-hmm. refugees from Syria, mm-hmm. uh, and there is a, was a lot more. It seemed to be a lot more solidarity with Christian refugees, um, but I suppose it's suggesting that actually, if that increases the overall solidarity, almost like a utilitarian model, uh, then. Then, then that might just be what we have to uh, go for. I think, I think for me, I, I, I see that affinity-based solidarity is really, really powerful, but I think from a human rights perspective, when you're always looking for who's left out and who's marginalised and who's more vulnerable, I mean, I worry for those who don't, you know, how do you say, uh, are from minorities, basically, you know, so they're not Christians, they're not Muslims, mm-hmm. they are, you know, maybe of no religion, you know, or, or religions that nobody really understands, or, you know, from ethnic groups that are really quite marginalised already, then then if we if we just, if we just proceed on affinity-based solidarity, then there's no place for them in this world, you know, so I think we have to rely on cosmopolitan solidarity. We we have to keep pushing for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in an you know the the solidarity that's not based on, on on identity, but just based on every human has the right to seek asylum. You know, um, yeah. Yeah. So moving on then to um, carry to your paper, um, which is about how telling refugee stories is meant to enhance or contribute to more solidarity. But you kind of problematize this picture a little bit. Uh, and talk about how telling refugee stories in different circumstances can be uh, problematic. Uh, so do you want to explain that a little bit and what it is that you think that we should be aware of when advocating telling stories uh, to, to get more solidarity with refugees? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if, the first thing to say is that I think that telling refugee stories can be hugely beneficial. I think it's a good way to raise awareness and understanding of the profound injustices that people have suffered and you sometimes sort of in the in ways of talking about solidarity and um talking about you know what can we do to to enhance more solidarity for with refugees we do sometimes lose that focus on injustice and we make it just about helping people Mm -hmm. um and i think that if refugee stories are framed in the right way then we can recenter that sense of injustice and that some this isn't just about helping people this is about redressing harm mm-hmm. um so we do need to to hear more refugee stories both about kind of why they've been forced to leave their homes and also about what they've experienced on the route to asylum and and then in receiving states as well what the experience of being a refugee living uh, the life of a refugee, even once you've been granted asylum, is like because um, it's it, solid. If we're serious about solidarity with refugees, it just doesn't just stop with the, the granting of asylum. It it is also about fostering agency and a good life for people um, when they've been resettled. So I think that hearing refugee stories can foster a sense of connection and fellow feeling that can make 
uh, a question of what's owed to refugees salient to people in a way that you know reading statistics and policy proposals is never going to uh, engender that connection. So if you think about sort of news media when journalists focus on a specific refugee story to bring the issue to life um, or when theatre groups like Ice and Fire perform works based on refugees accounts of their experiences I think that's a really positive thing but as you indicate I think there are kind of ethical questions that arise and, and things to be wary of and especially in news media but not only it, it is really quite common to find journalists looking for the most uncomplicatedly tragic stories to tell um, and there's this attention to the the horror and the pity of it and, and I understand that because that's what's going to grab people's attention but there is this tendency to prevent uh, to present refugees as these passive victims and especially you get stories about children women and children but children in particular where tropes of victimhood abound and we then of course become accustomed to thinking of refugees as victims and I think that makes it harder for us to see refugees as agents and if we're serious about a solidaristic relationship then we should be thinking of refugees as as agents as people who have their own ideas about what they want to do with their lives I think it also makes it harder for people who don't fit the paradigm of victimhood to be recognised and understood as refugees and to get their stories across. Um, and in my contribution to this project, I've been talking a bit about testimonial injustice as something that emerges from the paradigms of victimhood. So Miranda Fricker has this idea that people generally are used to uh, taking as authoritative the words and the ideas of people who occupy certain social positions. So paradigmatically, professional white men are going to be taken to be uh, credible, whereas teenage black boys are more likely to be met with suspicion. It's a sort of easy case for thinking about it. And we've had so many years of stories in the media in, in Europe about bogus asylum seekers and that's been sort of a term in the public discourse in the UK at any rate and that has kind of trained us to receive stories put forward by refugees with a degree of suspicion um, that has implications I think not just for the way that refugees testimonies are going to be received in asylum tribunals but also for the general public's understanding of uh, what refugee experience is like and all of that then has a, an undermining effect on the prospects for a genuine solidarity, one that's respectful of refugees' agency. Mm. Um, also, as an aside to that, I've been talking, and we've been talking a bit about refugees as though they were a homogenous group. And if we have this paradigmatic idea of what the refugee is, and we keep talking about refugees, the refugees, mm. then we expect them to be this homogenous group. And of course they're not. They're an incredibly diverse group. Um, but if the stories that most of the public hears about refugees don't reflect that, then again, that undermines the prospects for a genuine solidarity, I think. I suppose one thing that, <clears throat> that, that you mentioned, which is, so, so there's a danger of seeing refugees as victims, mm. um, but I suppose in there there's also this idea of innocence, mm -hmm. and that um, you, you have to be sort of a perfect moral agent throughout your refugee journey mm -hmm. to be classed as 
credible because credibility is a big um, is basically um, the basis on which your asylum might be be granted. But so so the um, the lack of agency doesn't just stem from uh, a victimhood, but also from uh, from innocence. And that as soon as something a little bit complicated might have occurred throughout your journey or whatever, some sort of decision you might have made. And some decision you might have made perhaps in response to asylum systems, such as, um, I don't know, lying about your age or something like that, then that's, um, that's undermining your credibility. But that because we seek out then those stories that have the innocence that undermines the idea of agency as well, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so if you think about, if you're fleeing Syria right now, you've got a well-founded fear of persecution. But to get from Syria to the UK, it is not, it would not be surprising to find that you had had to pay a people smuggler and that you would have had good reason to. It would not be surprising to find that you had illegally crossed the border. It would not be surprising to find that you had lied to a border guard at some point. And you would have good reasons to do all of those things. And that would not do anything to undermine your, your claim to, or that should not do anything to undermine your claim to a well-founded fear of, prosecu- uh, of persecution, and therefore a legitimate right to asylum. But none of those things in the current sort of climate look like innocent actions. They all look like complicity in what we take to be wrongful actions. Um, and that is contrary to the victimhood kind of paradigm because it's contrary to the picture of innocence that the victimhood paradigm kind of implies. Um, because if you're a passive victim, then you couldn't be an agent in injustice. And in doing those things, you are complicit in injustice, right? If you pay the people smugglers, then you give the people smugglers an incentive to keep doing the thing and smuggling the next person and the next person and the next person. But you're trying to get to a place of safety. So what do you do? Um, so yes, I, I, I think the, the stories that we're used to hearing, um, they, don't, they often don't allow much space for the, the more complicated narratives to emerge. Um, and that is a concern for fostering a genuine sense of, foli- of solidarity, mm-hmm. I think. And I think the reason why this is such an important uh, critique is because, like you say, I think we create these boxes mm-hmm. and we expect refugees to fit within these boxes. And the yes. moment they step out of the box, whether you know it's this question about are they really innocent or have they committed crimes or whatever, we judge them for it and we say, mm-hmm. you, do not, you, know, you do not deserve mm-hmm. uh, solidarity. Um, but the problem is that we need to be quite critical about how we're constructing these boxes you know, uh, of legitimacy, if you say. Um, because sometimes it, you know, it's, it is states themselves that create these conditions that require refugees to, to, to commit so-called crimes. You know, for example, when you say, oh, you're not allowed to leave the country or you need a visa in order to enter the country, but they're actually unable to achieve that, you know, the, the, the rules that you set, then they are, you know, they're perceived as committing crimes or falling behind or, or you know, doing something devious in order to, to bypass the rules. But... So I think we need to be quite critical about how we construct these boxes and what are the political processes that, that go into constructing these boxes. Because a lot of times, as I think both of you uh, 
have already shared um, in the past, stories of, of refugees and, and who they are and where they come from are so different. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's, we need to recognize that diversity and that plurality that exists in, the, in refugees' experiences. Mm. Yeah. And that fits quite uh, clearly mm. into what your paper was about, which was about deservingness and undeservingness, but specifically in the context of Malaysia. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to explain how those yeah. um, categories were constructed? So one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is, um, you know, whether refugees are perceived of as, as being deserving of protection or not. Um, and the case of Malaysia is slightly different, or in Southeast Asia is a bit different from Europe, because um, there aren't uh, sort of legal processes. Uh, asylum is not institutionalized. Um, the UNHCR operates in, in you know, Thailand, Malaysia, and Indonesia. But really, a lot of work goes into advocating uh, for the fact that refugees are a particular kind of you know, person who crosses a border and needs specific kinds of protections because of their status as a refugee, because of the circumstances of their movement. Um, the, the difficulty in Southeast Asia, because asylum is not institutionalized and because there's a very strong sort of public campaign on um, illegal immigrants, you know, I say that in inverted commas, um, so refugees are often misperceived as you know just being an irregular migrant um, and therefore not deserving of, of, of protection. So there's a bit of a contest you know between um, civil society advocates uh, and UNHCR on one side and then state authorities and anti you know people with xenophobic uh, sentiments on the other basically saying you know should refugees be here or not and what is the obligation of the state in relation to, to these refugees, these non-citizens. So there's still a, a bit of a, a dialogue that goes on that I think will always be an ending and, it, and still expresses itself in, in other uh, regions as well. Yeah. So do you think it's more difficult in a way to, to have solidarity or to find refugees to serve in, in this context where mm. um, there is no... Uh, because um, Malaysia hasn't signed the Geneva Refugee Convention, yeah, is that right? that's yeah. right. I, and I, you know, I think coming back to this paper, which, um, you know, um, uh, which Josh uh, and um, James, James wrote yeah. together, um, I think that cosmopolitan, co cosmopolitan forms of solidarity um, are more likely to occur when you have a cosmopolitan perspective um, or you have an understanding of human rights, the international human rights regime. In countries that don't describe to, to international human rights, then it is more likely that you'll see affinity-based solidarity expressing itself, you know? Um, and it's just, it's just based on, on his, history as well, what people understand um, and, and what people are used to in terms of the framing of, of, I guess, global politics, you know? So what groups of refugees would be more seen as more deserving in Malaysia? Yeah. So, so for example, uh, like in Malaysia, Malaysia has frequently, you know, voluntarily uh, helped various groups of Muslim refugees. Mm. Achenese from Indonesia, Bosnians, you know, Syrians, um, but they don't, you know, officially they don't want to help any other refugee from any other religion. <laughs> so, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And you also find among civil society groups that lots of churches um, help the Christian refugees, but are a little bit, you know, uh, not as proactive when it comes to other, other groups. But that's but that that's also I mean I, I don't want to overstate that because you know obviously there are people who you know don't pay attention to identity and just respond to people as people and I think that's very important to emphasize as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
I thought maybe just before I ask the final question, if I can ask another question. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that I just thought, because just at the start, uh, Kerry, you mentioned in it, and maybe you too, Alice, that there's maybe two ways in which um, in the public debate we talk most about solidarity with refugees, and one is the attitudes of citizens, and the other is uh, burden sharing or responsibility sharing, so solidarity between states. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you have any thoughts of if there's a tension there between those because it feels to me at least that recently the um this the so-called solidarity between european states or the the efforts to try to um create more solidarity in terms of responsibility sharing between eu states is almost crowding out solidarity uh with refugees mm-hmm. on sort of public attitudes basis because it's more about uh, it's become more about um, how to not um, have more refugees in your country. Yeah, so I mean, I think once you start down that conversation, you do invite a conversation about, well, they're not doing their fair share. And until they do their fair share, we're not going to do any more. Um, and it, it can become quite a, a counterproductive conversation to have. Um, but I mean, I wonder if this speaks to speaks to a sort of bigger issue of the the global refugee regime that um, David Owen, who's another contributor to this project, has has written about. Actually, is that the the refugee regime occupies this sort of odd function of legitimacy repair because you know we expect states to look after their own people, and if states don't look after their own people, then the people are really going to be in desperate circumstances Um, but they can ultimately in theory at least apply for asylum somewhere else if things become so desperate that that, that their state that they have to leave their state Um, and this is part of how we tell ourselves a story that the the regime of states is, is just and it's therefore fair for people in Britain or in Malaysia or in Sweden or wherever it happens to be to say, well, those people over there, they're not our problem. Um, and a sort of cosmopolitan normal solidarity, um, I think, stands in an interesting relationship to that idea of the refugee regime as legitimacy repair, because I think most cosmopolitans, most sort of theorists of cosmopolitanism, are people who just accept the legitimacy of states um, if, if for no other reason than a simple realism that states aren't going anywhere, you know, states are here to stay for, for the foreseeable future and, and then some. Um, but the, the, re, the refugee regime is, is trying to do this job um, and clearly it, it, it isn't working at the moment. Um, and I'm, I, I don't know, maybe there is a... a maybe where your question leads is for those of us who are thinking about refugee studies to say something more critical about the, the sort of global apparatus for dealing with this. Yeah, no, I think I think at the heart of it, what what I've been trying to, to understand and, and it's not that I agree with it, is that I think I think at the end of the day states are operating with self interest when it comes to, you know, sort of refugee protection. Um, and while they're willing to do a bit or you know a, a, you know do do something 
they don't want to be the main ones doing it, you know, and, and really uh, refugee protection really depends on international solidarity. So it has to be, you know, many states coming together rather than some states doing it. And I think that's, that's why I think coming back to the origin, you know, original statements we made when we started this podcast, international solidarity is fundamentally part of refugee protection because mm-hmm. the numbers and the resources required to help refugees in total cannot be carried by one or a few number of states. It really has to be a a globally shared, um, you know, sort of endeavor, um, but but it's hard because I think states do act in self in interest. Um, they do prioritize their own people, and and I think that citizens as well are willing to help as within particular limits. And I feel bad for saying that because I think it sounds really gloomy, you know. But I but I do think that if um, citizens of a state perceive that their own state is doing much more than what other states are doing, it that may that may produce a tension mm-hmm. with citizen populations where they say, Well, why are you spending all of this money? You no, know, it's like the the way they criticize states for spending foreign aid money, you know, why are you sending all the money away? Why don't you help us first? Um, I say that but then there are countries like Canada, you know, where um, Canadians have, well from from what I can see, quite a strong um, how do you say, a perception of themselves in terms of um, uh, you know, uh, in, in terms of their position to the rest of the states around them on refugee protection, where they they have sort of a, a taken taken it on as a as a value that they show their solidarity with refugees. You know, so actually showing solidarity with refugees um, invigorates and makes Canadian citizens happy uh, in a way that I don't see it with, with other citizens. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Christine Schala, her contribution to this project, talks about the Canadian Sponsor Programme. Mm, yes. um, and I think it's a really interesting example. But I, I, I do think, as, as much as I agree with you, um, uh, with what you're saying there, I do think it's sort of the Canadian experience is different to the, the, the Italian and the Greek experience, mm. for example, in Europe at the moment. And I think it is reasonable for Italian and Greek citizens to look at the rest of Europe and say, we're... we're Facing a burden here, yeah. help us out. Yes. Um, and Canada, you know, Canada doesn't have the same numbers of people yes. arriving yeah. at its shores in the same way yeah. as countries in southern Europe do at the moment, and, and as countries in Southeast Asia do. Yeah. But I think what is interesting about the Canadian case is that um, because it allows for private settlement, mm-hmm. um, it's an interesting example of how, of how if we allow ourselves to, in a way, bypass uh, bypass state responses, if it was um, if people were enabled to help other refugees in distant places, I think it would actually open up refugee protection a lot because I think in every country. You know, there are very committed people who are really willing and, you know, sort of materially and, you know, in, in, in not just in terms of ideas, but actually really willing to help refugees. If we open up the possibility for them to invite refugees to their own homes and their communities, I think actually you would see refugee protection expand quite a lot. You know, so it's not that states have to respond at a state level. If we move it, you know, if we rescale it and look at individuals and communities and families, I think you would see that actually there's... Yeah, you, you would be able to open up more spaces and homes and communities for refugees who are, who are struggling. I mean, I think that's right. I think that's a really interesting idea um, that I, w- I would love to see that explored. But I think it would be inevitable that you get more affinity-based mm. um, yeah. 
solidarities yeah. emerging there yeah. and, and then we do have the worry that, that you were talking about earlier yeah. about the, 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 the refugees who are already marginalised yeah. the refugees who are you know the, the sort of the, the most complicated cases yeah. would would find it harder yeah um, yeah so just spinning on in this point on uh, finally how how we actually get more uh, solidarity you already started but mm. any more suggestions mm. I mean I, so I, I, something that comes out of the way that I approach all of this is to think that we you know we a small part of increasing solidarity is to make more space in our public discourse for refugees to speak on their own behalf and tell their mm. diverse stories. David Owen in his contribution to, to the project talks about nothing about us without us, which is a, sort of, um, a useful way of thinking about it, I think. Um, and he makes the point that in virtue of refugees not being citizens and not having citizenship, they're excluded from democratic processes that um, are used to decide uh, how the, the, the global refugee regime plays out. Um, so I, you know, I'm not suggesting that, that this is the silver bullet, but I, I think um, hearing more diverse stories can help us. Um, and then at a, a more local level, the, the hearing of more diverse stories also is important for tackling the problem of uh, testimonial injustice that I referred to earlier. Um, I'm thinking uh, particularly of examples that have come up in the UK recently of things like LGBT plus asylum seekers being disbelieved in their claims, being thought not to be credible in their claims because they don't conform to really quite insidious stereotypes of what it is to be queer. Um, and I think there are quite obvious uh, reasons for addressing that that particular form of testimonial injustice and the general orientation of suspicion towards refugees because, as I say, it does erode the kind of trust that's necessary for solidarity to be sustained. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think allowing for more complexity in storytelling is, is quite fundamental. Um, and um, I think that's one thing. Uh, so, so allowing representations of refugees to be more diverse, you know, and to recognize the complexities of, of their movement um, and, and their circumstances. Um, for me, I think as what you said, addressing the injustices in the way that is, uh, the asylum system works is really quite important because, uh, you know, as we were saying before, the way that you force, force refugees to narrate themselves in order to fit their asylum profile can, can actually um, uh, lead to a lot of indignity, you know, stripping them of the dignity in the way the questions are formed and the, in the way that the, the interview is conducted because sometimes people who conduct those interviews can be quite dismissive. Mm. Um, or are always trying to catch out in a lie, you know. So I've spoken to refugees who have gone through asylum systems and for them their confidence is crushed, you know, after they, they go through that, that process. Um, but I think also we, we need to, I think we need to also go beyond stories, you know, and I think there's nothing more powerful than actually meeting refugees themselves and talking to them directly, you know. So not, not through mediated forms, but actually getting to know refugees um, and their families, and then realizing that actually being a refugee is just one small part mm -hmm. of who they are. You know, they are so much more than that, as we are more than the sum of our experiences in a way, you know. So I think once we recognize that, when we realize 
the humanity of people or we're connecting with each other as people, then it sort of sort of diminishes the relevance of, of refugeeness, you know? Mm. Um, and increases the 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 understanding that, that that we are people dealing with people. To find out more about Kerry Woods, Alice Nair and the project itself, please visit our website talkimmigration.com and I will update the website when the special issue has been published, so keep your eyes out for that as well. But that was all for this time. Thank you for listening.